Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Today is a Q&A podcast where my uh, Patreon supporters send in a bunch of questions and they actually vote on the questions to see which ones they want me to address. And so I have a whole list of questions I'm going to address on this podcast. What you're going to get is a sneak preview of the first few questions. If you want to listen to the rest of my responses to these questions, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theologyraw, sign up to be a Patreon supporter and get access to the full length uh, podcast episode of this Q&A podcast. So some of the questions we're going to wrestle with are uh, my thoughts on Jackie Hill Perry's recent, recent denouncement of the Enneagram as demonic. What does my personal quiet time look like? Do the divisions in 1 Corinthians apply to the concept of denominations? Do I have a theology of dinosaurs? Uh, Quite frankly, I'm surprised it's taken this long for somebody to ask me about my theology of dinosaurs. Is the ESV translation biased against women in leadership? Did Jesus think the Bible was divinely inspired? Do I believe in saving for retirement? What's my take on Andy Stanley's kerfluffle? And does 1 Corinthians 5 say we should divide from affirming gay Christians? And there's several other questions that I address. You can see all of them in the show notes. So let's jump in with our first question, and it goes like this. Jackie Hill Perry um, recently denounced the Enneagram as demonic in origin. Why do I think the broader Christian community has so casually embraced the Enneagram? Great question. I I wasn't aware of this, actually. I I follow Jackie pretty closely on on, uh, Instagram and um, her podcast, and I must have missed this one. So I went back and had to watch the five-minute video. And it's funny, you know, one of those things... You know, once I kind of found out about Jackie um, and her take on the Enneagram, of course, now I hear it from everybody. Like, what do you think about Jackie Old Perry's take? What do you think about Jackie's take? So I had to do a bit of research. First of all, I mean, as as I mean, as some of you know, I mean, I consider Jackie a friend. She's been on the podcast. She's spoken at my conferences, um, at my conference, singular, and um, been on webinars. And I just, I value her voice so, so, so incredibly much. Absolutely love her books. And um, so, um, yeah, it's with that context that I looked into this. Because I, I would say I'm a, I'm a, how would I say? I mean, I use the Enneagram very mildly, meaning like, you know, it comes up very casually in conversations. Oh, so what number are you? What's your wing? We kind of talk about it, get a feel for who, you know, how someone's wired or whatever. But like, I, I couldn't tell you a lot of much details at all about the Enneagram. Um, I have found it to be a um, helpful tool to think through broad categories of personalities. That's, that's about it. Like I, I, um, some people are just, you know, they, they, they're so into it. They think this is like just the best thing ever. Um, and other people hate it as demonic. And um, I, I guess I'm maybe somewhere in between. I don't know if in between would be the right phrase, but I, I, um, have found it to be a helpful tool, kind of no more, no less. Jackie's post did make me think about like how often do I refer to it? And I would say I I do kind of refer to it quite often. I do I do you know I feel like in conversations with people, it very quickly comes up what people's numbers are, um, what their wing is, you know, all this stuff. So I, even though I haven't done a lot of research into it, I, it does come up quite a bit in my conversations now that I kind of self reflect. So. Jackie um, did a bunch of stuff. She she got away for a couple of days, did a ton of study on the Enneagram and concluded that um, it has, you know, just really suspicious, if not demonic origins. And 
her post is really compelling. And so I was kind of like, ah, shoot. All right. Well, maybe I need to rethink everything here. Um, I did do some research into the Enneagram, not nearly as much as Jackie. Okay. So what you're going to hear from me, I would say, believe Jackie over me if there's any kind of potential disagreement here. There has been, I guess, rumors about one of, one of the and again, I don't even know if he's like the creator, one of the founders, or just one of the early gurus of the Enneagram, but a guy named Oscar uh, Ichazo, I think how you say his name. And um, there was rumors that he received the Enneagram from an angel or spirit named Metatron, which I thought was a transformer. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's a, I guess it's a, a pretty well-known name for a spirit being. And, and so that's a little suspicious. I'm like, okay, well, this guy's kind of the main... Founders, gurus, architects of the Enneagram, and he says he got it from a demon. Yeah, that'd be a little like suspicious, I guess. But then he, I did a little research on this, and he he came out and said that this rumor was wrong. He denounced it. He said, "I did not receive this knowledge from an angel or any other source, but from a careful study of the human psyche." I forget what he said. That some letter he wrote in response to this. So, um, and again, I. I I, I'm not claiming that that denouncement is even, you know, the best evidence. I'm just saying that um, the evidence for him receiving this from an angel, let's just say, let's just be really super cautious and say, well, it's a little complicated and mixed maybe. So I don't, I don't think uh, from the little study I've done, we can simply say for sure that he claimed that it came from a demon. There's another psychologist named Naranjo, who was a student of Achazo, um, who said in a, I believe it was a 2010 interview, that he got the Enneagram from automatic writing. Automatic writing. He didn't really go into detail what that is, so I had to uh, Google it. And according to Wiki, okay, it's Wiki, so it's Wiki. Wiki, Wiki. Don't use Wiki in your formal research. It's a, it's a great kind of quick tool to get a quick perspective on stuff. So anyway... Wiki says that automatic writing is some kind of like subconscious writing, which allows a person to produce written words without consciously writing. Okay. So just kind of like, I don't know, in some kind of trance with a pen in your hand or something. And it's just kind of your hand just kind of goes for it. I guess. I don't know. Uh, practitioners sometimes engage in who engage in automatic writing. They do so by holding a, a written instrument and allowing alleged spirits to manipulate the practitioner's hand. Okay, so that sounds a little suspicious. <laughs> now, Naranjo in the in, in the interview didn't didn't go into detail about it. He just kind of mentioned automatic writing, and from the you know from what I've heard others say, automatic writing can kind of mean different things to different people. So it doesn't necessarily mean he's claiming he was in some kind of like demonic trance while he was writing out all the stuff about the enneagram. Also, um, apparently he's been teaching the Instagram for 40 years before he made that claim. Like it was kind of a shock when he said that, like he's been teaching this for many years. He also, I mean, Naranjo has a doctorate. He studied at Harvard and Berkeley and he, you know, it, he actually studied personality types at like Harvard and Berkeley. So the guy has loads of um, psychological knowledge on personality types. So I don't know. So he, here's where whatever that claim is, whatever automatic writing is, he could also be when he's when he does write and talk about the enneagram, drawing on loads of psychological, like l maybe we can say legitimate psychological uh, sources. Plus, there's stuff in the enneagram, a lot of stuff from from again cross check. I'm saying I'm not the expert at all. From what I can tell, there's a lot of stuff in the enneagram that does predate Naranjo in the first place. There's a, a pastor online that I found a lot of good information on uh, Tyler Zach. I don't know who he is. Um, seems like a great 
super humble guy. Um, he seems to be well learned on the Enneagram, and and I found some stuff that he was addressing the the alleged uh, di- demonic origins of of the Enneagram. So I, f- I found that to be really helpful. Um, I so yeah, I, I treat the Enneagram kind of like other personality tests. I think they can, they can be helpful tools. I think they can be overused as well. And I think I, I love Jackie's point at the end of her video about Christians using the Enneagram is kind of like more a more significant descriptor of their identity than their identity in Christ. Like when any kind of like personality test, you know, um, conflicts with the biblical worldview, I think that, yeah, that's problematic. Or when people use the, the Enneagram as like a, as like an excuse for unvirtuous behavior. I don't even know if there's a number for shyness. Is it like the, a five or a... That's a, maybe that's a bad example. I was going to say like, you know, well, I'm an Enneagram five. And so I don't really want to ask people questions. I just want to kind of read some books or whatever. That's probably a bad description of five. I might even be a five and that, that doesn't really describe me too well, but, um, or, or a nine. Okay. You know, nines are like peace, peacemakers, right? They, they don't like conflict. Well, sometimes, um, righteous behavior might take you to places of conflict. So you can't say, Oh no, no, I'm a, I'm a nine. I don't do that. Well, no, you're a Christian first. So yes, there might be times to do that, you know, if it's the right thing to do. So, um, yeah. So when in any kind of personality test takes precedent over your Christian identity and what that identity calls you to, then I think that's problematic. And I, and I, um, yeah, to, to me that, that was for me the most helpful point that Jackie raised, which, which I a hundred percent agree in, uh, agree with. I don't, I don't, I don't see the Enneagram personally as like way better than other personality types. I, I've gone through the uh, DISC profile, D-I-S-C, which I found helpful. Uh, I did strength finders, which is really thorough. Um, Enneagram is kind of a quick and easy, you know, reference point for me, but I don't, um, I don't know. I, I, I haven't been convinced that Enneagram is like way better than all the others or different or spiritual in origin in a good way or in a, necessarily in a bad way. So Jackie's caused me to, 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 you know, think about it. And, um, I think we're due to have a conversation to kind of talk through a little more. Cause I, I do have some questions about, um, about that, but I, I, I found the origins of the Enneagram, um, a bit complicated for me to, um, simply toss it out just yet. Um, and, and also, I mean, I'm not always convinced that even the, the origins of something determines wh- whether the thing we're talking about is necessarily, wrong, bad, or unhelpful. I mean, we have like the origins of a lot of the Proverbs are in just ancient Near East wisdom as a whole. Of course, it's divinely inspired, but it's also drawing on ancient wisdom. There's a lot of parallels, for instance, between ancient Egyptian wisdom literature, wisdom texts, and proverb, uh, Egyptian Proverbs and the Book of Proverbs, you know. Um, I, I went through this a lot when I was in seminary when we, you know, we would kind of evaluate the legitimacy of other scholars and their commentaries or their books based on where they went to seminary or where they studied, you know, and be like, well, that person did go to Fuller. So they're going to be, I'm like, well, maybe, but shouldn't we judge the legitimacy of what somebody is saying and producing and doing based on the content of what they're doing and saying and producing, not simply where they went to school, you know, 40 years ago or whatever. Uh, people do that to me. <laughs> they look at my checkered um, educational history and, and might say, well, you must be, I'm like, well, Judge me based on what I'm actually saying and believing, not the origins of my educational experience. So, um, so I, I, I don't always, and this comes up with like CRT, right? To take a really quick turn, <laughs> people say, well, the origins are Marxist, and this is, you know, and like, okay, m- maybe that there can be some help 
and that might be helpful to look at the origins, but at the end of the day, I just simply denounce something based on the origins. I think we need to also look at the content of what we're denouncing and, and see if that is actually unhelpful or bad or shouldn't be listened to. Okay, next question. What does my personal quiet time or Bible study look like? How long? What plan? What time of the day? Your approach? How often? Etc. Um, great question. I would say if I look back over my my last ten years, maybe how, how far back do you want to go? I, it's been it's been different in different seasons. Um, when I was doing my <laughs> okay, here here's gonna be my hardcore days. That uh, back when I was doing my PhD, I think I'd get up at like four in the morning. Maybe four thirty. I think I was set my alarm for well, I, maybe four o'clock. And part part of it is because we had tiny little kids at home. The sun in the wintertime went down at like three thirty in Scotland, and um, my wife was like, "Is there any way you can get home where there's a little bit of daylight left, and you know, hang out with the kids, play with them outside, whatever, before the sun goes down?" So I said, well, if we if I just alter my schedule, then yeah, I, I need to get in. I think I was trying to do like 10, 10 hours a day of research, 10, 10, 12 hours a day of research. And so I would get up at like 3.30 or 4, and I would spend like 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and, and back then, I would, I, would, I would read a chunk of the Old Testament in Hebrew, a chunk of the New Testament in Greek, just because it was such a – the original languages were so fresh in my mind. And to me, that was like – I don't know, it's an invigorating way to start the day by digging into kind of like really specific nuances in the text. I have uh, tried various Bible reading plans where I'm doing like three chapters a day. And typically I try to do that in the morning. I don't think I've ever finished a one year Bible plan. I've gotten like halfway through the year and then stuff happens and you fall behind, you get discouraged. And next thing you know, you're like 16 chapters of Leviticus to read before tomorrow morning. And it's your kid's birthday. And you're like, sorry, I got to, you know, stay up late tonight to read Leviticus because I have to get the, you know, and I just found, I don't know. I just, for me personally, because maybe it's because of my life or my late, maybe it's just, I'm just an idiot. I don't know. I just always find myself, you know, a couple of days of falling behind. Next thing you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, you know, if I if I try to blow through this and make it up, then am I really doing what I should be doing? So, I have never stuck with a one year Bible plan. Um, I would say right now, my idea here's my ideal. There. So, so you, you might be hearing, I'm not consistent. That's that's the big answer to your question. I'm not consistent on a on a good day. I'm up at six or six thirty with an alarm. I'm not a morning person. If I don't set an alarm, I'll wake up at eight eight thirty. I'm not. It's hard for me to get out of bed. Um, so if I want to get up early, six six thirty. Right now, uh, typically read some Bible and then some other book. Not necessarily for re. Well, sometimes it's it's connected to my research, but I'm not researching with my computer open. I'm just I'm reading. I'm trying to reflect. Sometimes I'll. I'll you know, if it's a if it, if it's a theology book, I'll be kind of going back to passages that the book is looking at. Like right now, I'm digging into the book of Revelation, kind of political readings of Revelation. So I might go back to certain passages. Like I, I spent um, the last few days in Revelation 12 to 14. So kind of reading the text and then maybe going to a commentary type book and, and then, you know, seeing what they say about the passage and going back and looking at the text. So I don't have any kind of like, make sure I get through this chapter today. It's just kind of like, I don't know, spend some time in the text um, informally. 
Um, and then I'll spend on a good day again on a good day. Sometime in prayer. Sometimes I look at the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to get to work, and I don't pray, which is bad. I should prioritize prayer um, because the Bible study part comes easier than the prayer part. So, gosh, I'm counseling myself here, my own therapist. <laughs> I should probably start with prayer uh, because that's the one that's going to go that I'm not going to get to. Um, yeah, if all of a sudden I feel like I need to get to work really quickly or whatever. So I did some a fellow PhD student when I was when I was doing my PhD a couple of decades ago. You know, I was kind of frantically like, "Oh, how can I make sure I'm having my devotional time in like on top of my my PhD studies?" And he was like, "What do you mean by that?" I'm like, "You know, like I want to read the Bible, you know, for um, for spiritual nourishment, not just for research." And he's like, "Well, you're a Christian." Your research, your research times in the Bible should also be devotional, and your devotional time should also be thoughtful. <laughs> so he kind of pushed back, or not pushed back. He was just kind of like expanded my mind to realize that, like, um, you know, it's probably more helpful just whenever you open the text, whenever you're thinking about the text, to be both thoughtful and devotional. Like, because I've tried the whole like, you know, reading books that are just kind of fluffy. They're just kind of airy. They're kind of just not really scholarly, you know, and I just have a hard time with that kind of like, quote unquote, traditional devotional literature. I just, I can't shut my mind off when I'm thinking about the Bible and I don't think I should, you know? So uh, at the same time, when I, when my mind is cranking on all three cylinders or however many I got up there, um, like I also need to be not just reading the Bible for academic, for an academic, you know, pursuit. I'm ultimately, anytime I open the text, whether I'm, I'm doing Greek and Hebrew word studies or reading whatever, like, I, my ultimate goal is to be formed in the likeness of Christ, whether through deep study or quote unquote devotional study. So, so I've learned to try to like merge the two. Um, and because my life is oriented around studying the Bible, I try to, um, have my devotional hat on at least a window up in the back of my mind, my devotional window up, you know, to use a computer analogy. Um, I try to always have that up, always be thinking, how is this forming me into the likeness of Christ? Okay, next question. Does 1 Corinthians um, 1, talking about divisions among the people, apply to the concept of denominations? Is it biblical to have these splits within the church? I don't think 1 Corinthians 1 could be directly mapped upon modern-day denominations. I mean, it's talking about disunity within local house churches in Corinth. And um, they were dividing largely around, um, you know, various factions forming around certain leaders, and there was a lot of pride involved. And a lot of there's, there's more um, socioeconomic stuff going on there as well. Yeah, I, I think that some of the division around leaders had to do with um, this kind of a patron-client system, where some of these where they were kind of treating these various leaders as patrons and they were kind of forming clients around them. And, and it gets a little complicated there, but I, I, all that to say, I think there's some unique stuff going on in first Corinthians one, or it really it's, you know, first Corinthians one to four as a whole um, talks about these divisions. Um, I think the modern concept of denominations can't be found directly in the text of scripture. Like I don't think, yeah, it's all that. Yeah. I don't think, what we now call denominations, these, these, you know, organizations of, of many, 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 you know, individual churches coming together um, around certain points of doctrine and practice. I don't think First Corinthians 1 would say... Yeah.
Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this portion of the Patreon-only Q&A podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full-length episode and receive other bonus content like monthly podcasts, opportunities to ask questions, access to first drafts of my research and monthly Zoom chats and more, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw to join Theology in the Raw's Patreon community. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.